good, church? How are we? Yes, you are excited. I'm excited. Let's be here today. Hey, if you have your Bibles, would you open to Romans chapter 1? Um, guys, I am all for what just happened on that stage. Thank you guys so much for reading and being real, and I love every second of it. Today is a great day for so many things. I have a couple of announcements at the top end of my message, uh, and normally uh, this doesn't happen unless it's a really, really, really big thing. Number one, we are thankful and blessed to have the Bell Haven Blazer baseball team here today. So we, can we give them a hand clap of appreciation? <laughs> Fellas, we are so thankful that you guys are here today. Another thing, we are thankful that all of you are here today. I will save you for the hand clap of praise for yourself, but there are some big, okay, there it is. We're going to give ourselves a hand clap. Um, the, the really important thing I want to share with you, next Sunday is October. That's crazy all in of itself, but it's October 2nd, next Sunday, and that means we are not meeting on this campus next Sunday, okay? So if you have been at Broadmoor your whole life, we have not, we're not meeting next Sunday here. If today's day one for you and you think, I got to come back, don't come back here next Sunday. Join us at Liberty Park. We have a three-fold event day planned for this church and our community, okay? So let me run down the particulars pretty quickly, okay? We're going to have worship in the park next Sunday morning at 9.30, the park being Liberty Park. Last year, do you remember us doing worship in the park? That was a great idea until it was 162 degrees, okay? I checked the 10-day forecast. We're praying the Lord is gracious and kind, but right now, the high that day, the high, not at 9.30, the high is 82 degrees. That is far better than 1,000 degrees that we experienced last summer. So we are going to have worship that day. I think it's like 11% rain. It doesn't mean it's not going to. Check the weather, come dressed accordingly. Bring your friends. It's gonna be a great day, 9.30, okay? Uh, following that, we're going to have dinner on the grounds. That's what I'm calling it. It's called a family lunch at Liberty Park at 11 a.m. So it's worship service at 9.30, lunch together as a faith family at 11. Listen to me, lunch is free, F-R-E-E, -E, free. But we do need you to RSVP. Here's how that's going to happen. You're going to text the word lunch, L-U-N-C-H. It's one of my favorite words ever to learn how to spell, to number 32373. If you have the Broadmoor text, it is that number. If you get the, the daily Bible reading plan, if you get updates from anything Broadmoor, just text lunch into that, that chat, and then it's going to allow you to, to say how many people are coming with you, and that gives us an idea so you can join us for lunch on that day. And then, and then there's more. At 2 o'clock to 6 o'clock on that same day, we are having Community Fest. You've seen the... the, uh, the invitations all over. You've seen the, the big display outside. This is kind of like our fun fest that we, that we would do on campus all these years prior. We are going off campus this year for our community, and so we would love for you to take part in that. So let me be clear, October 2nd, not on this campus. We're going to be at Liberty Park. Lunch is free, but we need you to RSVP. So here's what you can do to help us, okay? Number one, pray for October 2nd. Please put it on your prayer calendars. Put it as a reminder on your phone to pray every day, every morning, every night. Pray with your family. Pray individually. Pray for that day. Share as much as you can. If you're on social media, share all of the information with your friends and in our community. Invite your friends and family to join us next Sunday. And then finally, and most importantly, show up next Sunday. It is going to be a blast. That was really fast, and I only burned four minutes. I am very proud of myself, okay? 
All that being said, it is going to be a great day. The takeaway of this morning's uh, public service announcement is there is no service, there is no activity on this campus next Sunday. It will all take place at Liberty Park. Please plan and show up accordingly. Okay, we have a whole lot to get to, and I don't know if I've ever been this excited to preach a text, okay? So if you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. But once you find yourself there, you're going to go back one verse to verse 17. And as you're finding your way to this text, I need to, to kind of give you a word of warning. Uh, as we have journeyed in Romans so far, the first 17 verses, they've been really positive. They, they've been encouraging. They're much like Caleb every single day. They, they are good for those who read it. You may find yourself at the end of these last two weeks really encouraged and lifted up. Today will feel at times a lot different. Matter of fact, a whole lot different. But that's okay. I'm just asking you to stay with me as we journey through this text together. All right, so as we jump in, verse 18 through 25 that we heard read today is our text for today, but you need to hear verse 17 again. Here's Romans chapter 1, verse 17. For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. All right, so whenever we have verse 17 and verse 18 together, we have, and you're going to see in just a moment, God presenting himself to the world through creation. We're going to talk more about that, but just here, verse 17, that's the positive. That's the, the righteousness of God is revealed. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness an unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. So as we look in, there is so much. We, we could stay on this verse for a whole sermon. We're not. We're going to move pretty quickly. But I want you to hear some key words and, and get a grasp on what they mean. So when it, when it starts out for the wrath of God, last week we talked about the righteousness, and we talked about what that meant. This week we talk about the wrath of God and what that means. A lot of times when we think of wrath, we think of like, like somebody who is just angry and exploding, and they're ready just to destroy something. Well, in the Scriptures, particularly in the Greek language, there are two words for wrath. It is used in two different ways in the scriptures. The first word that we see is themos. This is an anger that causes you to lose control. Anger that is brought on without great thought. It's where we get our word thermometer, and it's this idea of temperature continues to rise. And if you've ever seen that, that cartoon or an illustration, when a temperature reaches its end, it explodes. It is this idea of thermos. When I think about this word, I think of horseflies. It's a weird illustration, I know. We don't have a lot of those here in Madison County. You say, well, Josh, you don't know where I live. No, no, hear me out. Where we came from, we came from the swamp. Like we, the, the Louis, we're in Mississippi, Picayune, Mississippi, but we lived on the Louisiana Wildlife Game Preserve. There were critters that we didn't know existed that visited us most every day, which was fun and sometimes scary. But some of the worst critters were mosquitoes the size of vultures and horseflies. I hate horseflies because horseflies aren't like mosquitoes. I can hear a, a mosquito buzzing. I can know that there are mosquitoes out here. Don't go out here if you don't want to get bit. Horseflies come out of nowhere. You're enjoying your day. 
You're having a walk around the yard. You're swimming in the pool. You're visiting with friends. And all of a sudden, it feels like a truck smashes into the, the back of you and pulls flesh from your body. Anybody experience that? I hate them. And, and what happens is you're fine. One second, you're holding your hot dog, enjoying a good conversation. And then you fly off the handle, swinging at something that's not there. That is kind of the picture of this first Greek word of wrath, that you go from zero to Hulk monster in 0.3 seconds. Without any thought, without any concern, without, without any discretion given, you are going to take an exact revenge. The second word and the word that we see in this text, so that first word doesn't exist here. It does exist later on in the scripture, but it does not exist here when talking about the wrath of God. It's called orge. O-R-D-G-A-Y. This is the word used in the text. This anger is against sin specifically. It is controlled, it is measured, and it is settled. This is with great thought. And so before we move on to one more word, we need to settle in our hearts that God's wrath is not the same as our wrath. Because a lot of times we tend to put the wrath that we talked about the first one, the themos, that, that, that wrath on God, because that better fits our story. That's how we view our wrath. Usually our wrath is, is not measured. It's usually not precise. It's usually we, we, we are calm and then we fly off the handle. And a lot of times we want to take characteristics that we have own and experience and place them on God so we can have a better understanding of him. That is not how it works. God's wrath is not the same as our wrath. His wrath is perfect. It is controlled and it is precise. Now that we have a better understanding of wrath, we need to, to continue on a little bit, okay? It says, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against what? All ungodliness. Another word to hear this is irreverence. It is, it is not honoring God for who he is. And then it's not just all ungodliness, but it's also unrighteousness, which is, which is wickedness, which is not a living according to his word or his law. So why did they do this? Why, why did they, God's chosen people, if the first 17 verses were so positive, why in this first century did they decide to go ungodly and unrighteous if God is holy, if God is magnificent, if he's perfect? If his word is clear and time-tested and true, why did they not honor him and live according to his word? The remainder of that verse tells us, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So in their wickedness, in their disobedience, they suppress the truth. This is a picture of, of pressing something down to hide it. So it can't be seen by anyone, especially ourselves. So, so they suppress this truth. Think of a spring, a spring that has sprung, and you push that spring down to hide it, to make sure it's not there. But all the while, the more you press down, it's going to give tension to push back up. Understanding this concept is important moving forward in this letter. It is going to help us understand them in their context. And it's going to help us understand us and our lives today. So back to the question at hand. Why would they suppress the truth of God if he is good, if he is holy, if he is righteous, and if he loves them? Why would they take what is true about him and push it down? Verse 19 and 20 give us the answer. 
For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. All right, so God in his great grace has made known to, listen to this, everyone, some of his glory and likeness. We can see God's invisible attributes, especially his eternal power and divine nature in the things that he has made. What is that called? Creation. But this isn't new revelation. God has been revealing his likeness and power and nature from the beginning of time. All right, this, this bit is really important. This means that no man, no, no one, no part of mankind has an excuse. Someone can't get to the end of their life and say, I didn't know that there was a God. I didn't know that there was something bigger than me. King David says it this way in Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pour out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. See, what can be known has been made plain to them so that they may know him and love him and serve him. This is called general revelation. It's a big theological term. I want you to, to understand it. It is not to be confused with general or natural theology, okay? That thought is all that needs to be known about God can be perceived from nature. Meaning, Jesus didn't need to come, Jesus didn't need to die, Jesus didn't need to raise. So there is this idea of natural theology or general theology that creation not only declares the glory of God, but it also gives us a right understanding to be made right with him. Again, this is not that. That is not an accurate picture of what the scripture teaches. This is also not to be confused, and this is where our role in life comes into play, with specific revelation. So, the creation declares the glory of God. General revelation, specific revelation is this. It is making known the truths of God through specific revelation, which is preaching and teaching and talking. This general revelation that, that we get from creation is God making himself known. Not only, uh, not only does it show mankind glimpses of God, but as mankind looks at that creation, it also shows glimpses of themselves. Said another way, when they would see creation, mankind, they would begin to see just how great and grand he truly is. That being true, they would also see glimpses of God's greatness and grandeur and in turn see glimpses of their brokenness and their smallness. You ever had this experience in your life when you were in creation? Think of the first time that you went to the ocean and you stood on the edge of the beach staring out into that vast water and if you look straight, not to the right or left where you see a billion people in bunches of condos. But where you look out into the ocean and you see nothing but water and sky, and there's a moment where you feel small. Maybe it's not the ocean for you. Maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's something else. Maybe it's a mountaintop. Maybe it's a sunset. Maybe it's a sunrise. Maybe it's a starry night. But I know you've experienced it if you've ever gone into creation to soak it in because all of God's creation declares his glory. 
and their sin, their wickedness, was in view of God revealing himself to them, they desired and attempted, listen, to erase God and to live like he never existed. They did not like the small and powerless feeling. That is why the wrath of God was revealed from heaven. His crowning creation, mankind, has decidedly chosen to live opposite of every purpose it was created for. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says it this way. It asks the question, what is the chief end of man? What was man designed to do in its creation? Its answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I believe that's accurate. I believe we get that from the scriptures. The reason for man's creation is that man would know God, to love God, to glorify God, and to enjoy him forever. But in complete rebellion, God's creation has chosen to do the opposite. And the fallout of that rebellion has been absolutely disastrous. Paul gives us the progression of what that fallout looks like for them. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. All right, this word, they knew God, can be troublesome. Because it almost sounds like they were children of God. They knew, they knew God in an intimate way. A better way to hear that translation is this. They knew of God. They had a head knowledge of who he was. When they walked out and experienced creation, they were without excuse. There was something bigger than them. They knew of him, their general revelation. This is, not an, this is not a case for apostasy, which is the renouncing of your faith and falling away. Even though God was gracious and allowed everyone to see some of his glory and might, they didn't honor him. That, that's what should have happened. You see his glory, you see his grandeur, you see his might, you say, life is yours. Who, who am I to, to do anything different? They didn't honor him. They didn't give thanks to him. And because they didn't, here's an effect. They didn't honor God. They didn't give thanks to him. And they became futile in their thinking. Futile is other, other words that would define it would be worthless, silly. And I think my, my favorite translation is brittle. This, this idea that their thinking became so brittle that, that if they, they turn away from God and his design, that everything that they thought would just, at, the, at the, the slightest touch or the slightest struggle, would begin to fall apart. And because of that, because their, their futile minds, their foolish hearts were darkened. Here's what a foolish heart is, according to the scripture. Hearts that are certain of what they think, but they are completely wrong. I know what is true. I'm deciding that this is true. You can't tell me any, any different. But to be completely wrong in that, those who chose the darkness over the light became dark. And here's what that darkness looked like. Look at verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And their futility, their, their darkened hearts, they made the claim and declared, we are wise. Remember their sin. They tried to suppress God. They tried to live like he didn't exist. 
So they pushed the truth of God down and declared, I am wise. Not God, not, not, not this infinite being, not this glory we see around us. It is not saying anything, and if it is saying anything, it is saying we are great. This is how far they went to suppress the truth. Verse 23. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So, so glory, whenever we see it in the scriptures, when, when we talk about God being glorious or we see his glory or we're going to give him glory, glory is a term for weight, like, like something, something heavy, some, something that is authentic. Have you, ever, have you ever picked up something that as you looked at it, you couldn't tell if it was, it was the real deal or if you looked at it, you couldn't tell if that was expensive, but the moment that you put your hands on it and you picked it up, you thought, whoa, I need to put that down and kids don't touch that because that's real. It's the same, same idea, this glory is this, this weight. So they exchange what creation is painting this picture. It is allowing them to experience God's glory. And what they do and where they go and how they live, they feel the weight of this authentic God. But instead of saying, God, to you be this glory, they take it and they exchange it. They exchange it for strange things. And I want you to see the progression that comes here. In their rebellion, they took God's creation, his glorious declaration, and instead of praising him, they exchanged it for lesser things. I think Paul was very um, strategic in what he wrote next. For mortal man, for birds, for animals, and for creeping things. Can you not see the enemy's hand in all of this? What was he in Genesis 3? What did he show himself to Eve and Adam as? As a serpent. As a creeping thing. And so from, from this, this, this is way, way past Genesis 3. This is real time, first century Christianity. And in this moment, they've exchanged the glory of God for themselves, for birds, for animals, for creeping things. Why? Because when they looked at man... When they looked at animals, when they looked at birds, when they looked at creeping things, they didn't feel inferior. They didn't feel small. They didn't feel powerless. So let's praise that. So really we're praising me. That's their sin. That, that's what's going on in Rome. And Paul is painting this picture. You might be sitting here this morning saying, God must have taken great offense at this. He did. His wrath was revealed from heaven. How did he do it? Fire and brimstone like Sodom and Gomorrah? Did he turn them all into pillars of salt like Lot's wife? Was it wind? Was it flood? Was it plague? Was it coronavirus? He did punish them with the worst punishment imaginable. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. God gave them, listen, what they wanted. 
What did they want? They wanted the lust of their hearts. They wanted impurity. They wanted to dishonor them body, their bodies among themselves. You have to remember, God created man for the purpose, sole purpose, of loving him. God gave mankind a heart, the essence of their life, not the beating muscle in the chest, to desire him, to long for him, to find completeness in him. God created man's body, our body, in his image, to be loved, to be cared for, to be a moving display of his glory. No doubt this broke God's heart, so what did he do? He let them go. That is the fullest extent of God's wrath to his creation. He created them to be his. And in this careful, precise, calculated moment, wrath against their sin, he lets them go. Don't miss the weight of this. To live the life that they chose. Let them go to live the life that they chose. A life centered on themselves. A life of earthly destruction that is leading to eternal destruction. Wait, wait. Are you saying that God will let his children go? Letting them do whatever they want to do? Josh, that doesn't sound right. Even knowing that their rebellion is going to hurt them? Yes. Jesus tells us about this exact reality in Luke 15 with the parable of the prodigal son. So yeah, this is what Paul is saying here. And this is what Jesus is saying there. There's so much more here, but I don't, want to, I don't want us to miss this sobering truth. Many times we view God's corrective action in our life as wrath or punishment. Don't think of it that way. God's, correct, uh, God's corrective action is not wrath. As we will see later on in this letter for the Christian, Jesus satisfied the wrath of God on the cross of Calvary. God's corrective action for us is grace extended to us. But the most terrifying punishment, his wrath extended, is giving mankind what they want most. So for us, don't assume just because we have something that God gave it to us or that God wants you to have it. Josh, I don't like what you just said. Remember Jesus' temptation in the wilderness? Satan said, bow down and worship me, and I will, what, give you all the kingdoms of the world. He wasn't playing. He actually had authority to do that. And Jesus refutes that through the scriptures. I just don't want us to, to have this improper understanding of, of God and gifts in this life because if we walk around and we have never been convicted about anything that we have done or anything that we have, we've never felt a tension of, of should I buy this or should I not? Should I own this or should I not? Should I be a part of this or should I not? And if all we ever experience is, I love everything that I have and God has never convicted me one time, please, please, please make sure that what you have is because God wants you to have it and not because you've worked really hard to get it and you've stamped God's blessing on it to make you feel better. 
This is, this, is, this is what they are experiencing in the first century, but it's not something that has changed in these 2,000 years. But back to our text. Why would a loving God give his creation over to themselves? Why would he let them go? Verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Because they rebelled against the truth and chose to believe the lie because they suppressed God's declaration of himself. Instead of worshiping and serving their God who created them fearfully and wonderfully, they worshiped and served the creature. They gave their love, their affection, and their devotion to everyone and everything except God. So in their rebellion, they suppressed the truth of God. They pushed it down, and they decided they wanted to exchange that for something that was not true, something that was a lie. Our worship team is going to come back out, and we are going to move in an invitation time. But again, as always, this ain't the time to pack up. There's sin their sin here, first century, their sin, the, 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 the plate of humanity in Romans, was they tried to erase God and live like his law doesn't exist. Josh, this is terribly depressing. I thought church was supposed to be positive and encouraging. This isn't that. You're right. This is incredibly awful news. But it's actually a lot worse than you may think. Because as you have heard this sermon today for the last 30 minutes, you may have thought somewhere in this presentation, somewhere in this preaching, that this is their problem. This, this is the Roman church's problem. This, this is humanity's problem a long time ago. Church, this is our problem. This is our story. This is what sin has done to us. We have rebelled against holy God. We have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We have suppressed the truth of God and exchanged it for lesser things. We have, in many ways, tried to, with all that we are, erase God and act like his law doesn't exist. So is there hope for us? You said God let them go. Will God let us go? Yes. But he won't do so without hope. Do you remember after Genesis 3, the fall happens, God confronts Adam and Eve in the garden. Their punishment. They can't be in the garden anymore. They got to go. Sin has revealed their nakedness to them. Their shame, their guilt is there because of it. What did God do before he sent them out? He clothed them. How did he clothe them? With animal skins. What had to happen to the animal to get its skin? It had to die. God sacrificed something pure and innocent to cover the sin of man. The consequences were still very real. They had to leave. But before they left, God gave them a promise that one day someone would come that would redeem them and bring them back 
So yes, there is hope for us. Do you remember last week when we talked about the gospel and how Paul was called to, to preach the gospel and he was a servant of the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is, is the good news of God that he has for the whole world. What is at the core of the gospel? It is Christ and Christ crucified. There is a way back to God. To be clear, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. No one is righteous, no, not one. All have been released over to themselves, but there is a way back, and his name is Jesus Christ. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can get to the Father except through me. In the same way that we live and we see creation and it still today declares his glory, we also experience the weight of our brokenness and we realize that we are, we are off base. We are, the Bible uses a word called sin. It's, it's an archery term meaning missing the mark. We've missed the mark. And so in and of ourselves, we try to fix it. We try to make it better. And when we can't, we try to cover it so other people can't see. We try to suppress our brokenness and try to put other things in its place so people will look at us and applaud us, but inside we know we are always broken. And so when we come to this text today, we see that the only hope in this life and in death is Jesus Christ our Lord. What we read today is for every person on this planet. If you don't know this truth, then the good news of the gospel is not good to you. If you don't know the depth of your depravity, the extent of your brokenness, the good news is not good news at all. But if you understand who you are because of your sin, you are hopeless, you are helpless, you are alone and you are dead. The offer of new life is exhilarating. Yes, Josh, so you're saying Romans gets better from here. Have you read on? Paul is going to continue to help us understand our helpless estate apart from Christ a little more thoroughly. Next week, we're going to pause Romans as we go into the community, and we're going to enjoy a different message on that day and jump right back in. It's going to be great. But I want you to remember as we journey on in Romans, as the reality of our sin begins to sink in more and more each week, that Christ is our only hope. He was our hope then, he's our hope now, and he will be our hope forever. If you have not surrendered your life to Christ, you should be overwhelmed and undone at the thought of being turned over to yourself and separated forever from the loving God who created you. But if you have surrendered to Christ, you should be overwhelmed and undone by his great grace extended to you, covering your sin and bringing you home. I'll end by quoting and not singing one of my favorite hymns, written by a man named Horatio Spafford. The hymn is called, It Is Well With My Soul. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, 
Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though though Satan should buffet, so he should attack. Though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I will bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Can we give God a great praise this morning? Not because preacher finally did a hymn, but because the hymn is true. We were helpless in our sin. Our estate was dead, but Christ regarded it and gave us new life in his name. Our sin situation is bleak. The same thing that separated them from God in the first century is the same thing that separates us today. We trade the truth of God for a lie. We suppress the truth all around us. We don't want people to see our brokenness. We don't want people to see our smallness. So we take God and we try to hide him and we want to act like his law doesn't exist. And so we put something else in its place, us. We like us a lot better. We don't make us feel inferior. Until you look closely at yourself and then you do. That's the reason right now that you are not satisfied with who you are. Not just in what you see. It's not just a physical thing, although that's part of it. That is an effect of sin. This dissatisfaction. This idea that you are never enough. You'll never amount to enough. No matter how hard you try, no matter where you go, no matter how much money you make, no matter what size house you live in, no matter what neighborhood you come from or what school your kids are in, it will never be enough because nothing on this side of eternity can fix what's broken in you. Only Christ can do that. And so I'm asking you, I'm begging you today, if you have not put your hope and trust in Jesus Christ, As this invitation time begins, cry out to him from where you sit, grab somebody, come down front, whatever you gotta do. Don't leave here today without surrendering your life to Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, let this be a moment of celebration of what he has done on your behalf, nothing you did. I I love the phrase and I remember it from, from my early days in seminary. The only thing that we have brought to the table of salvation is the need to be saved. That's the only thing we brought. God brought everything else and he invited us anyway. I'm not asking you to promise him to try harder or do better. I'm not asking you to say to God, God, if you save me or if you forgive me, I'll never do that bad thing again. You can't make that promise. I am asking you to say, God, just as I am with all that I am, I give it to you and I trust you with it. Save me today. That is our invitation and that is our call. Church, would you pray with me? Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that we are just 
just on the edge of this beautiful book. God, that has changed the lives of countless millions. God, I pray it would do the same for us. Help us now as we move into this invitation time. Help us see the depth of our depravity, but help us see even more the beauty of your salvation. Oh, Jesus, we love you, and it's in your name that we pray and stand and respond. Church, would you stand with me?